So that's what we do. We just spend all our time on YouTube finding meaningless videos. I, I don't have, there's nothing to do with anything we're about to do. I just thought it was a cool video. Uh, actually, there is a point I, I would like to make. Uh, and, and that is, as I mentioned, when we go through uh, life at a rapid clip, we miss some of the blessings therein, some of the details uh, that are part and parcel of life that would be helpful for us to be cognizant of. Uh, so too when we read the Bible. Here's the point. Sometimes we can so speed read the Bible that we're missing the facets and the nooks and the crannies and the terms and, and the uh, various shades of meaning and the aspects and, and the application and the wonders of Scripture. So what uh, I would like for us to do over the next, I don't know, one, two, three possibly 10 to 12 years. I, I, I would like for us to do just what these beautiful puppies did, and that is just slow down and uh, feast on the precious morsels which are uh, contained in the book, more specifically, the letter of Romans. So that's where we're going to be. And why Romans? Uh, I became persuaded early on in the, uh, the Christian life that if we can come to be right about the contents of Romans, then we won't be wrong about the fundamental truths of our faith. So if we can get this right, we won't be wrong. And so that's the theme of what we're going to be doing over uh, quite a long period of uh, time, but I hope it will be helpful and profitable to you as it has already come uh, to be for me. And so uh, uh, before we introduce the book in detail, let's just dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1, the first word in Romans. Here it is in everybody's translation, Paul. And when I read this, just that one word, I thought to myself, I, I'll bet you anything that this Paul, who lived some 2,000 years ago, never, ever imagined that folks like us, centuries removed from his uh, relatively short span on earth, would be mentioning his name in our environment and situation, would be discussing him, and would be reading uh, the things he had to say 2,000 years ago. He had an ambition, but I assure you, his ambition did not include us speaking about him uh, today. He had an ambition to be a great rabbi, and it was fulfilled. In fact, he studied under some of the greatest rabbis uh, of the day. Uh, but he had no idea that, uh, that groups of believers of every different strife over the millennium would be discussing the Apostle Paul and attaching significance to what he had to say and what is recorded for us down to this very day, and it is contained here in this marvelous letter of Romans. You see, Paul was entirely transformed. He would have been absolutely surprised to think that groups of followers of the Lord Jesus would find him to be an authoritative representative of Christ Jesus and who would sit and uh, at his feet and study his words. He was a transformed man. He was hitherto uh, uh, Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, which would be Tarsus, located in modern-day 
Turkey. He was a rabbi of renown. Uh, he studied in very authentic, incredible schools of rabbinical training. And for someone to tell him, there'll be a day, one day, rabbi, uh, Shaul, make no mistake about it, when you will be so transformed that you will be named not Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, but the Apostle Paul, representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a transformation he didn't see coming. It was a change in his life. Uh, he had little or nothing to do with. There are some things you and I can change about ourselves, and we ought to for the good. But frankly, this kind of transformation is attributable to the intervention of Almighty God. Tomorrow, I'm going to get a haircut. I think you wanted to know that. And um, I know that because uh, my wife told me. And so this is how we, we find out what we're doing day by day. So I'm going to get a haircut, and I'm going to be a changed person. I'm going to be groomed and a little less gray or white or whatever is left up there. I don't know what it is. So we can do certain cosmetic things for sure. But this kind of change, to remove oneself from under the umbrella of rabbinical Judaism, to be set free uh, by the Holy Spirit of God to be so inhabited by him that you have the strong conviction of being in right standing with Almighty God, even apart from the law, that kind of transformation is categorically different than the cosmetic changes which are in fact the only ones we're really enabled to bring about. We're reading the writing of a changed person. Changed not by a self-help group, but uh, not by reading one of the books on the top 10 bestsellers, not by any stick-to-itiveness, commitments, or vows. We're reading the writings of someone who's a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I hope you could say the same. I hope your present day life experience can only be explainable by the change which the Lord Jesus Christ has wrought in your life. There are many of us here who could testify to that fact. No boast, no brag, no arrogance, but we could look you in the eye if you'd give us some time and tell you, I can tell you, uh, of the lifestyle I used to live and I can contrast it with the lifestyle I'm privileged to live today and I can tell you that the intervening event was coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal savior. If that kind of thing is of interest to you and we hope it is, then later tonight we'd like to visit with you in a wonderful place we call the Connection Center so that we could talk to you uh, of a life-transforming experience attributable to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, uh, many people think of the Apostle Paul today, some not in glowing and complimentary terms, but many even works of art have been created so as to depict, so as to portray the artist's rendition, image, uh, speculative image of what the Apostle Paul was like. And, and, and so, for instance, this is how the famous artist Rembrandt depicted the Apostle 
Paul. Perhaps you've seen this. It's rather famous. This would be a depiction of Paul, obviously, much later in his life. Now he's an elderly man, and he is in prison. He was so transformed by the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, which set him free by a pardon by forgiveness, he was so transformed that he was even willing to be imprisoned for the faith. So this is Rembrandt's depiction uh, of him. And uh, the first word in the letter, Paul, is a very fitting one because he's the author of this. And almost no one disputes this. Not conservative theologians for sure, not even liberal theologians. Just about everyone is on board in attributing the authorship of this letter to this one called Paul. He's the author and he wrote not only the letter of Romans, but he also wrote 13 letters contained in the New Testament. And here is a simplified a way to take a peek at these 13 letters. He wrote letters to various churches and he also wrote letters to specific individuals who he had a connection to and who he was mentoring and who he wanted to encourage in Christian ministry. 13 of all the New Testament letters were penned, authored by Paul. Listen, he was really, really smart. But these letters cannot be attributed to his smartness. No, 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 no. What he got went way beyond natural capacity. Uh, what he got went beyond human reason and in the category of divine revelation. What he got was not through natural processes. What he got was supernaturally revealed. What he got was not a function of human reason. It was a function of divine revelation. Make no mistake about it. What we are about to delve into, enter into, and feast on uh, contain the words of Almighty God. And as I think about it, 2,000 years ago, it was conformed, uh, I'm rounding off, uh, about 2,000 years ago it was conformed to writing. And we hold in our hands, in our various wonderful translations, something that God gave in the course of redemptive history through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. Listen, our faith is being assaulted, demeaned, and questioned, whether it's by sitcoms or liberal theologians, but no faith group could lay claim to that which we can. We have in our possession the word of transcendent deity who conformed his morality and his ethics and his mind to propositional truth, writing words coming through human agency by supernatural inspiration so that one such as you and I, 2,000 years removed from it, can still learn from it, see the mind of Christ, and walk in the same ways that the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago. God showed Paul a lot. And Paul realized that to whom much is shown, to whom much is given, much is required. And so he went about. He who once was blind to the claims of Jesus, his own Messiah, he met him in a miraculous way. And once his eyes were opened, and literally he was blinded, but, but I mean spiritually, when he was given eyes to see, behold who the Lord Jesus was, the crucified, foretold, and predicted Messiah, his own Messiah, he couldn't contain himself. 
And so he organized all kinds of trips around his world to spread the wealth of the gospel, which we'll talk about in weeks to come, so that others would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as well. And he organized for himself three major excursions in particular. Don't you think it's wonderful that the Spain group and the Ethiopia group and the Hidalgo group are doing exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago if you are a if you become a Christian tonight I want you to know something you will immediately become a part of a family that spans not only the globe but also the eons of time you will find yourself inclusion in, in, in the family of God a forever family you will no longer wonder who am I why do I feel so disconnected do I have nothing in are you kidding me you will become a family member of the apostle Paul. So, so anyway, he went on three missionary journeys, and this little map will give you an idea where his third journey took him. It started in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. That's where all things started. It's the epicenter of God's great commission and plan to reach the world. And he went from uh, Jerusalem from Israel, uh, there uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean, and he went on this journey and two previous ones all over uh, the Mediterranean world. Eventually, he's going to end up in Rome. It was his heart's desire, but he's going to get there in a way he never could have anticipated. He never could have imagined that his voyage to Rome would be under the circumstances they will come to be. We'll talk about it in weeks and months ahead. But anyway, that gives you a glimpse of his third missionary journey. And it is likely that he wrote this letter towards the end of this, his final and third missionary journey. And when he wrote it, when he wrote this letter, he was probably writing from a place called Corinth. His third missionary journey took him here. It's in, would you like to guess what modern day country Corinth is in? It's in Greece. Did anyone say that? Yeah, oh good, a few people did. Wonderful. It's in, has anyone ever been to Corinth? Some people have. So you can testify it's a real place, right? We're not reading Greek mythology here, are we? This is like the real deal. I was in Corinth and stood before the Bima. Bima. That's where the Roman governing officials would sit on a raised platform. And Paul stood at the base of the Bima to be publicly put on display and judged by the Roman tribunal. You could go to that place today and stand in the very place where Paul, this Paul, was put on trial for his faith. So he went about the Mediterranean world and wrote this particular letter probably around AD 57. I'm not good at math. This is 2013. You do the math. I like to round it off to 2,000 years ago. This particular letter was written. It was written to recipients who were believers. They were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and they consisted of 
Jewish followers of the Lord Jesus and Gentile followers. They were together in one church in Rome. It looks like, and I think we could make this case as we go through Romans, most of the believers in Rome were Gentile believers. There surely were Jews, but it looks like that church uh, was predominantly peopled, populated by Gentile believers. Paul had not yet been there. Uh, so the question could be raised, well, then how did the church there get started? He started some, but he had not yet been to Rome. How did the church get started? Uh, it is very likely that Jews uh, from Rome made their way to Jerusalem uh, to observe and celebrate a very special occasion. It is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And it was called a holiday known as Shavuot. Or we would call it Pentecost. Shavuot means 50 because it was a holiday that took place approximately 50 days after Pesach or Passover. 50 days after Passover, Shavuot. It's called the Feast of Weeks. And it was one of the biblical three pilgrim feasts when Jews from all over the world would make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. So the city uh, was filled with Jews from every nation. And though they had their Jewishness in common, they had linguistic barriers. You see, they spoke all different. They were Jews from Spain. They were Jews from Greece. They were Jews from Rome. They spoke all different kinds of languages, and it was a bit of an impediment to their fellowship, you see. They couldn't have the richness of harmony because of this language barrier. Well, they're there on Shavuot, and there are other Jews there as well. They were followers of uh, Yeshua, Jesus. He had been crucified and resurrected, and he gave marching orders to his followers. They were ready to be mobilized and go into action mode. But he told them something which to them was as difficult, I'm sure, as it is to us. You know what he said? He said, wait. Uh, that's a tough one, huh? Wait. He said, uh, uh, gather together, stay together, pray and wait. Pray and wait. For what? Wait until you receive power from on high to do the things I want you to do and be the people I want you to be. You cannot do what I want you to do in your own strength. Stop thinking that. Stop putting that much faith and confidence in yourself. Sit tight. Stay together. Pray. Until the time, you'll know when, when I empower you from on high. And then go with the greatest commission ever given. Take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're gathered together in one house. There's about 120 of them. And all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2 tells us uh, there was a powerful wind that made a noise a loud noise. And then the text says, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Could you imagine 
what a sight and sound experience this must have been. They knew they were at the beginning of a new era which was being inaugurated. One nobody had ever experienced before. And they were right. The Holy Spirit came upon them in a way he had never come before. And the rabbis at the time said Shavuot, Pentecost, was a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and thus the beginning of Judaism. But Rabbi Jesus was saying, oh no, we're moving past that. This Pentecost, this Shavuot, is a celebration not of the giving of the law and the inauguration of Judaism, it's the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that happened in Acts chapter two. And there were Jews there who knew the Lord Jesus and they were residents of Rome. And it is thought, and I am one who thinks this is the case, at the end of the holiday Shavuot, they went back to Rome and the church there began on the heels of their passion and enthusiasm and they reported, we have power now for the Holy Spirit is not temporary. He permanently indwells those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and now we have power to do the very things he wants for us to do. Now Paul, as I mentioned, had never been there but even though he had not yet been there, the church in Rome began and this was then the most powerful city in the world. And Paul knew about it and he was quite a strategic leader. He had in his mind to make his way to Rome because he wanted from there to go to further places removed from Jerusalem, including Spain. But he knew before he got to Rome, the believers there were key players in this strategy to spread the gospel. And if the believers were not theologically and doctrinally mature and sound, if they didn't understand the biblical record, if they had misunderstandings about their nature, about the nature of God, about the biblical record, if they were uh, confused about all this, then they could not be an effective beachhead for great commission efforts beyond Rome. So in advance of his coming from Corinth, he penned this magnificent letter to them, his purpose being in essence, get this right and you won't be wrong. That is the whole purpose, in my opinion, of this letter written to the Roman believers, Jews and Gentiles. Get this Get the contents of this book right and then you won't be wrong about any other theological truth. Get this right and you won't be led astray by false teachers into false teaching. Get this right and you'll be less susceptible to, be letting, uh, to being led into a cult-like experience. Get this right and you won't be wrong about the humanity and divinity of Christ Jesus. Get this right, and you won't be wrong about justification by faith. Get this right, and you won't be wrong about how Jews and Gentiles both, both fit into the church. Get this right, and you'll be everything God wants you to be, and you'll do everything he wants you to do. So Romans is pivotal, and folks, uh, I, I think that ought to be our purpose in our study as well. If we get this right, it's gonna be much less likely 
that one day one of us is going to report in one of our iConnect classes, did you hear about what happened to so-and-so? He dropped out. She dropped out. They're now part uh, of a sect, uh, uh, of a cult. They, they do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They do not believe in the sufficiency of Christ. They do not believe in grace, salvation by grace alone. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? That's a tragedy when we hear things like that. Now, I think Paul wrote Romans to uh, diminish the possibility of that kind of thing happen. So that's why I want to go slow. To me, this is the doctrinal jewel in the crown of the biblical record. If we get this right, it's tough. Don't get me wrong. We're going to learn together, struggle over some stuff. It's going to be a slow trek through Romans. But once we get this, it seems to me there'll be much less likelihood that any one of our brothers and sisters who we so dearly love will be led astray by smooth-talking, sweet-talking, false teachers with aberrant theology leading people away from the grace uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I mentioned to you Paul had never been to Rome. As a result, he introduces himself to the recipients of this letter in a much more lengthy way than you will find in any of his other letters. He's usually quite concise. I'm Paul. This is who I am. Hope you're doing well. Here, he says a lot about himself. But what really, really shocked me and amazed me is what he told them and us first about himself. He tells them that he is a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Folks, help me here. We are talking about the greatest missionary who ever lived. We're talking about perhaps the greatest apostle in the group of specialized people called apostles. We're talking about the one who studied under the greatest rabbis of his day. We're talking about the one, as I mentioned, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. We're talking about Shaul. We're talking about Paul. He could lay claim. He was the PhD of his day. He was the premier rabbi and theologian of his day. He could have introduced himself in all manner of ways. And instead he said, in essence, I am Paul. I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. This blows me away. He's wearing a rather derogatory label with honor. I don't get it. Literally, the term, which is a compound bondservant, is the word slave. You can clean it up all you want, but it's the word slave. You know what he said? I'm Paul. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And that just blows my mind. And when he said that to the Roman Christians, this is the kind of image that would have been conjured up in their minds, in the minds of most of the recipients of the, this rather unattractive image of slavery. Bondage, not volunteered for, not chosen, not sought after. Nobody had an ambition to live the life of a slave. You don't want your daughter to grow up to marry one. You don't want to be one. If you are one, every ounce of your being is exerted in freedom, not slavery, not bondage. Everyone in Rome who heard that Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ Jesus said, what? Your property. What? You have no rights. What? Your master has total and complete control. What? There were at the time 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Everyone was one or knew one or had been one. And this is how Paul identifies himself. And in Rome, 
This was not attractive. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. Are you kidding me? This is not the resume you publicize. This is not the way you portray yourself if you want people to follow. This is not the way you promote. I am Paul. I'm a slave. I'm in, I'm in bonds. And he said so, unabashed, unashamed, head up, shoulders back. He said it as if it was the most glorious thing you could possibly say. Why? Why? As I thought about it, I, I thought about this. Everybody's a slave of something or someone. Paul said, I would rather be a slave of Christ Jesus than of anyone or anything else. And Paul would say, and I know what I'm talking about. He would say, I was at one time enslaved to the doing of the law as the means by which I sought to win God's favor. And he would say, the commandments are good, but I'm not. Paul would say it was a horrific experience. Paul would say, you know, as much as I did the law, what it persuaded me of, of this. He, he said, I used to cry out, you know, the very thing I, I want to do, I don't do. I want to do the good stuff laid out in the law, but I don't do those very things. And the very thing the Lord asks me to do, which I want to do, I don't do. Who shall set me free? He said, I'm acquainted with slavery. It's not a matter of not being a slave. The issue is, whose slave are, are you? He said, by virtue of my physical birth, I was born in bondage to sin. And by virtue of my spiritual rebirth, I've been set free from bondage to sin. He said, oh yeah, you can call me a slave of Christ. For if the sun sets you free, yeah, true freedom. And so he acquaints us with this biblical sort of a paradox. And he is saying that the road to freedom is voluntary enslavement to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a paradox? So this is what Paul was pleased to say about himself, if you will. He said, I am Paul, a slave of Christ. And in being bastard by him, I have found a far better freedom. That's what he said. Have you? Have you found this paradox to be true in your life? I shared this with you many times and I want to do it again because I want to remember. I remember when I was in the military and engaged in habits and addictions and things I couldn't break and was not proud of and knew no way out of. And, uh, and I would practice these habits in the military every night with guys similarly enslaved. One night, one of my friends, one of the fellow military guys knocked on the door, Stuart, ready, let's go to do whatever we did. <clears throat> And I had become a Christian a few days before. It's like these marvelous people we saw baptized. Same thing. I came to know the same Lord they just publicly identified with. I didn't know anything. I wasn't brought to a church yet. I didn't, I didn't understand the Bible. I didn't know anything. But the transformation had begun in my life. It bypassed all kinds of understanding. I didn't know about theology and Greek, Hebrew and all this stuff. Baptists. <laughs> I knew nothing. I knew things were different from the inside out. So I remember telling my friend when he invited me, come on, get ready, we're going. I said, no, I'm not going tonight. Why not? Don't want to. 
Why not? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. How about that testimony? What's up? You know what he said to me? Did you get religion? I said, I don't think so. But I came to know Christ as my Savior. He said to me, "Ah, and now you become a slave to that. And I remember him long before I knew Romans was in the Bible, long before I had a Bible. I remember saying to him, oh no, for the first time in my life, I'm free. I'm free to say no, I'm not going to do those things. That was not stick That was not a New Year's resolution. That wasn't a self-help book. That wasn't turning over a new leaf. That was empowerment by the same Holy Spirit who came upon these people in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago. That was the Lord Jesus taking up his residence in my puny old life. That's me becoming a new creature in Christ (laughs) from the inside out. Have you experienced this kind of paradox? Real freedom is to be willing to be in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we Americans may fast be becoming the least free people on earth. Isn't that a terrible thing? We pride ourselves on being free. We go to war for our freedoms, but I think we may fast be becoming the least free people on earth. We are seeing our people obliged to sin like never before. Without restraint in their thinking, in their behavior. The least free people on earth. How could you be said to be free if you can't say no to a cruel taskmaster and that is our own passions? How could you be said to, be, to say yes to Jesus is not to say yes to a cruel taskmaster. It's just to say yes to the most loving and kind Lord of Lords and King of Kings whose will is good and acceptable and perfect. Have you experienced that kind of freedom? Would you be willing to say just as Paul did, let me introduce myself. My name is so-and-so. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Hey, let me show you this little visual one, one more time. Are you willing to take this description upon yourselves voluntarily and freely? I am, fill in your name, just privately where you sit, silently. I am, your name, a slave of Christ. And in him, I, like Paul, have found a far better freedom. Folks, I, maybe you, used to have an identity crisis. We Christians need no longer to be in crisis about our identity. Therein is it. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. The struggle is not in identifying our identity. The struggle is living in accordance with it. (laughs) It is one thing to be a Christian, and I'm finding it's another thing to freely volunteer to be a bond servant of the Christ who has saved us. I'm finding that to be sort of a different thing. A bondservant relinquishes his or her rights. A bondservant says, thy will, not my will, be done. 
A bondservant is enveloped <laughs> in the heart of the master. It's one thing to be a Christian. It's another thing to accept our new identity, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. It cannot be imposed. It's different. This is not involuntary servitude. This is a reflection of what happened in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21. And there the, the Hebrew word is exactly the same. It's the equivalent of the Greek word here used in New Testament for slave. In Exodus 21, a Jew could have been sold into slavery to another Jew so as to repay a debt through labors. And at the time when the debt was repaid through a sufficient period of time laboring for the creditor, the master, the creditor, would say, and now you are free to go. But there's a provision in Exodus 21, you should read it, wherein if this previously indebted slave chose to remain on with his master, he could so designate himself as a voluntary participant by asking the priest to take him to the doorpost of the house and with an awl, a pointy object, pierce his ear. Attach it to the doorpost. And the slave would be essentially saying, true freedom is not to depart from my master to whom I once but no longer owed a debt because he saw to its satisfaction True freedom now is to volunteer so as to be fastened to the master's house. Have you made that decision? <coughs> My fellow Christians, I'm working on it. It's sort of a process. I'm not preaching to anyone. I don't just want to be a Christian by name. And I don't just want to thank God for the forgiveness of my sin, which I know I possess by his grace. <clears throat> I want to volunteer to be fastened to the master's house. I want to relinquish my so-called freedoms, which have put me in bondage. And I want to say, I am here for your glory. Thy will be done. And in so doing, I want the world out there to see something in here that distinguishes me from the world out there. <laughs> I want them to see that I'm under the umbrella of the kindest master imaginable. The one who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will not exploit you, abandon you, neglect you, or abuse you. The one who says, now don't misunderstand, my ways are not exactly your ways, so there are going to be some bumps in the road for you. But I'm a master who has kind intentions and knows what each of those bumps is designed to produce. And then the master says, I tell you what, let me just give you a glimpse of what it's going to be like for you when this life has run its course. You will be presented to the Father, you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. My master, 
is involved in completing the work he began in me, perfecting me so that I could be free of all those things which have kept me in bondage for most of my life. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your Master? I hope so. Lord Jesus, a bond servant, a bond slave of yours, bound to be your servant. Bound by what? Fear of you? Oh no. Bound by your love for us. For your perfect love is designed to cast out our fear and we are improperly motivated if we yield to you by fear. Oh no. Like the slave in Exodus 21, we want to yield to you as a voluntary expression of our hearts filled with gratitude. For you have first loved us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this new pronouncement. We are so thrilled to be bound to you. Covenant blessing that will not let us go. And we pray, Master Jesus, that you would be pleased with the lives you have enabled us to live for your glory. And this we pray. We pray this as bondservants of yours. In your name, Lord Jesus, this we pray. Amen. 